0: Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world, one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Welcome to all of you in the room. Welcome uh, for those of you online as well. So uh, one encounter, one conversation with Jesus can change everything. Uh, The Gospels, uh, when we look at them, these encounters with Jesus that people have, uh, they either drew closer to him or they ended up pushing him away. And I think we have the same choice today in encountering Jesus. We can either pull into him and we can receive what he's doing or we can resist and pull away. And depending upon our choices, I I think it really makes the determination as to whether our hearts become harder and we become more like Pharisees or whether we become more like the disciples who God chose to do through ordinary people amazing things. We see so much change in the disciples' lives because of what Jesus did, and they do the impossible. Peter walks on water. John had the strength to stay by Jesus even all the way through the foot of the cross. Philip uh, prayed and saw people healed. Today, we're going to look at two people who had entirely different encounters with Jesus. Jesus' encounters had this way of shattering expectations and ideas about who God really is and, and how he wants to relate to us. and. And uh, he rarely did what we, we ex- what we would expect him to do in a lot of these encounters. His encounters with individuals were not even necessarily long explanations of truth. Lectures, very seldom, many of them were not even always marked with a supernatural miracle. Yet every encounter Jesus had, as you read through the Gospels, is just as unique as the individual that he's talking to. So as we continue our one big story today where we've been spending this entire year going cover to cover in the Bible... We're currently in the process of exploring Jesus' ministry. Last week, we talked about what it means when Jesus says don't judge, the most quoted and most misused uh, statement of Jesus uh, by our culture in the Bible, period. Uh, He doesn't mean don't talk about things are right or wrong. He means don't condemn one another. He actually means, in a heart of love, we speak truth, but we present it in a way that is so winsome and so strong that it draws people to him and to us in a way that they can hear it. And Jesus is such an expert at speaking in this way to people. We see it in two back-to-back stories in the Gospel of John. Very different people with uniquely different transformations that God wants to take place in a life. Two examples which give us an understanding of how Jesus is pursuing us today. So we're going to begin today with a religious man. His name is Nicodemus. He has had this high position. The Jews, he was among the Jews. He was a highly educated, talented, a Pharisee chosen to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a select group of Jews who under Roman authority functioned as the lower court for civil affairs and religious matters. So they were, this is a big deal. Nicodemus was kind of the varsity religious team, and he he took morality to a whole new level. I mean, the Pharisees counted out that there were 613 official commands in the Old Testament. Along with that, they had a bunch of other rules of how to live all this stuff out, such as if you forget to say the blessing over your food, even if it's 10 hours later, fully digested, or you're asleep in bed, you need to actually get up and go back to where you ate that food to say the blessing. Now, if I invite you over to my home and we, for some reason, forget to say a blessing over the food, please don't come back at 11 o'clock that night and wake me up to say it. I'd prefer you don't do that. I mean, Jesus strongly denounced the Pharisees for their legalism. I mean, combined with their strict adherence to religious rules, Nicodemus would have had some really definite, defined ideas about who God is. And I think all of us, regardless of where we are in our faith development, we also have definite ideas of who God is. And we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. No, we're not sure why. It doesn't, text doesn't tell us why. Some say it's because he didn't want others to know he was coming to Jesus. Maybe that was it. I mean, it would have been acceptable for a Pharisee like him to come to Jesus to ask questions to get more information. That would have been completely acceptable. And maybe he just wanted to ask questions out of the limelight, out of the pressures of other people around him. He just wanted to really have a heart to heart with Jesus. We don't know. Nicodemus asks a question and And actually, uh, uh, Jesus actually interprets and understands this question almost before he asks it. And Jesus responds as if reading his soul. So in John 3, 2, it says, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, almost as if understanding what he's asking, says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds with confusion. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? I mean, this is ridiculous, Jesus. You must be off your rocker. I'm 50. You want me to climb back into my mother's womb? Do you realize how psychologically jarring that that is to even picture that or think about that? I mean, that's just weird, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus, essentially, that he's talking about a different kind of birth. So Nicodemus is basically saying it's not a theoretical knowledge you need as much as you need a spiritual regeneration. I mean, think about it. Nicodemus' life was based on trusting his security in God by being a Jew who followed all the rules. Instead, Jesus unfolds his plan of salvation to the world, and it's to Nicodemus in the dark of night that Jesus explains step-by-step the work that is necessary to inherit the kingdom of heaven in one of the most well-known and loved verses in the Bible, John 3.16. But let's start in verse 5. So Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, this Jesus saying this truly, truly thing, it means that unequivocally and clear, in no uncertain terms, that you must be born again or you'll never see this kingdom of God. So Jesus is challenging something to the depth right here, but Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, our famous verse, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love the one after which often doesn't get quoted. It says, For God did not send his Son... Into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I mean, think about how confusing for Nicodemus, for all of all the Pharisees. Jesus is saying you must be born again, you must tap into and have this new source of identity and authority in your life. To be born again, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. I mean, everything about Nicodemus is put together. Religion, duty, appearance, everything was focused on making himself look good on the outside, impressing others, even himself being good at all times. He's trying to put the pieces together, what Jesus is saying, but he's but he's kind of curious because he's seen Jesus, you know, be a miracle worker and yet Jesus eats with sinners, and he's seen Jesus forgive of other people's sins as if he were God, but yet he fails to adhere to the common religious practices like not working on the Sabbath by preaching, teaching, and healing people on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus just didn't match up to the God that Nicodemus understood. And Jesus is saying that Nicodemus needs a whole new basis for righteous standing before God. Your right standing before God is not going to be something that comes from your behavior, but something given to you as a gift. Jesus would live his life uh, in in the way that that, that we were supposed to live it, and, and then he would die the death that we were condemned to die because of our sin in our place so that he could give us as a gift righteous standing before God. So just think about that for a second. I mean, we gloss over that. It's a truth many of you. If you've been around church, you know really well. But let's say you owe $40 million. And you're just making you know $100 monthly payments on that debt. And you know you're never going to pay it off. You know you're never going to have that much money. You owe a debt that you can never pay. But then all of a sudden, for some reason, Bill Gates writes you one day and he says, My bank account's your bank account. Everything he has is now yours. And now your debt's gone and you have money to spare. That's the concept that Jesus paid your debt if you accept it. Nicodemus was wanting Jesus to tell him, what must I do to be saved? What is the missing ingredient? Help me to know how to put more money into my account so I can pay the debt. And Jesus was telling him, you need a whole new way of thinking. He's saying, I will be the one to do for you and for everyone, but you cannot do for yourselves. It's a gift. To receive the gift, you have to die to your old way of righteousness, the way you try to become right based on your own works, and you need to be born again into a new one based upon faith in Jesus. mean, that's a difficult transition for For most people, because most people have their lives pretty well put together, they're pretty successful, and they think, well, I live a pretty good life, and I'm better than others, and I don't need someone to help me, I can do it on my own, I can make it happen, I can get to heaven, and we tend to rely on ourselves really easy. Or for others of us, even in our success sometimes, and maybe this is what Nicodemus was feeling too at that point, maybe Nicodemus has been so focused on numbing himself through controlling his behaviors, staying busy, following the rules, being successful, being good, that he's afraid of being left alone with his own thoughts because he doesn't want to face his own shortcomings. Asking himself, what would I be without my accomplishments? Isn't it easy to do that? Just become become so numb because we can't face quietness. We can't face those failures that each and every one of us know we have in our lives. Overall, the Pharisees responded to Jesus' challenge with a lack of humility and a lack of recognizing they really need God. They became actually more convinced of their own superiority, their own understanding of salvation, and more judgmental of Jesus as time went on, on the whole. They were not teachable. They didn't want to change the way Jesus was asking them to change. As for Nicodemus, his actual response is unclear. We don't know. There's no hallelujah moment. He didn't come to the altar. All It appears that Nicodemus left and We don't hear anything else about him for quite a while until later in John. We're going to actually come back to him. The very next chapter, right after this, we see a person who is everything Nicodemus was not. She is not a religious leader, one who can boast in her own righteousness. And it's in this encounter that Jesus makes good on the declaration that God so loved the world, all the world. This is one of my favorite encounters in all of the Bible with Jesus and people. Right after Jesus encounters Nicodemus, he takes this journey through Samaria, remember? If you've been around the church at all, and if you haven't, understand this. The Samaritans were a small, hated community of people. They were hated by the the Jews going back about a thousand years when Israel divided into two kingdoms. They eventually claimed that the Jewish temple was corrupt and started to establish their new places of worship. They rejected all the writings of the prophets in the Jewish tradition, only accepting the five books Moses wrote. And then eventually, through a number of circumstances, started to intermarry with pagan cultures around them. And adopt pagan gods and put that right alongside their own Torah idea, and they become this kind of strange, weird cult and Jesus was also uh, the, uh, Samaria was also at the, at the time of Jesus a refuge for outlaws as well. There was so much hatred between the Samaritan and the Jew that if you were trying to get from Jerusalem to the northern part of Israel, rather than going through Samaria, Jews would typically add six days to their journey to avoid going through Samaria to get there. And they did it for two reasons. Number one, they were afraid of violence, possibly being beaten up or killed or robbed. And second, they would feel defiled, in a sense, going through because they felt it was such an evil people and evil territory. Yet we see Jesus purposely choosing to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. And this is what makes this encounter even more shocking. We once again see Jesus speak straight to the soul of this woman that he's going to interact with and to our soul as well. Let's read it in John 4. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob that had been given to, to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Again, this is about noon, the sixth hour. So for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So, so the Samaritan woman is going to the well at noon. I mean, if you've been around the Middle East, especially in the heat of the summer, where you don't go outside at noon. The reason she's going to the then to the well is because she didn't feel comfortable, safe, secure, going other times. She is hated by the other women. She is the outcast of the outcasts. She is surprised to see this man because she didn't expect anyone to be there. And he's a Jew and should therefore hate her and think she'd, and and, and, and think she'd make him unclean if she was around him. But Jesus instead asks her for a drink. He's not worried about her making him unclean. She responds by leading to the labels that define her. You see in the text, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So get this, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, a label that said, I am far less valuable than you. I am despised by you. I am the scum of the earth. Watch how Jesus gets past the labels and the lies and speaks truth and grace. Before we get there, isn't it true that we all wear labels? Some of our labels are based upon what we do. I'm an accountant or whatever it is you do. Others are based upon relationships. I'm, I'm a son. I'm a mother. I'm single. I'm married. I'm divorced or however we want to label it. Labels are given based on our race, our culture, our gender. We sometimes label ourselves with things we're good at or even struggle with. We say, well, I'm, I'm creative. I'm sensitive. I'm controlling. I'm overweight. I'm socially awkward. We labels can be helpful, maybe even necessary at times. However, labels can be deeply problematic when they're connected to a lie. Like we say, because I am whatever the label is, I can never be forgiven. Because I am whatever the label is, I will always be alone. I'll always be second best or third best or whatever we say. We all wrestle with lies, don't we? What are some of yours that come up in your thoughts on a regular basis? The Samaritan woman leads with her label, I am a Samaritan, I am not valued, especially by you, Jesus. And Jesus responds and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus doesn't address her label. He, Her being a Samaritan is a non-issue to him. He says to her, if you knew who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She leads with her doubts of, I'm a Samaritan about her identity. And Jesus pushes back with the truth about his identity. If you knew who I was. It doesn't matter in a sense who she is. It matters who he is. She doesn't know yet who he is. And therefore the whole conversation throughout the whole thing, Jesus is patiently waiting to reveal to her who he is, which slowly actually leads her to revealing the truth about who she is as well. Now, at this point, she thinks Jesus is talking about literal water, so she goes on and says, "'The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I mean, are you greater than our father Joseph? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock.'" She's getting stuck in earthly things, and Jesus points, as Jesus is pointing her to the spiritual and the eternal. Just like Nicodemus didn't get what born again meant, this woman takes Jesus way too literally. And so she's confused, saying, you don't have water to draw. You don't have anything to draw water. Who are are you? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus responds to her saying, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is a powerful image, especially in a really dry, desert, arid land. Jesus talks about living water. What's he talking about? So Jesus uses this image to help remind us that our physical thirst, our physical longings are a reflection of, of a deeper longing that every single one of us has that God wants to fulfill. Jesus is telling her he wants to fulfill her greatest longings for eternity and in the present life that she's experiencing now. Jesus wants to fill her life now with water that satisfies, a well that is plentiful, that spills over and runs over. She's never heard of living water. She doesn't know. To look for it or hope for it. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She's receptive to Jesus. She presses into what's, so Jesus chooses to press into what's really holding her back. He goes right to the heart of her need, all of the greatest, the greatest source of her hopelessness, her guilt, and her shame. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. And come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. Boom. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus takes truth. In this moment, he wraps it with such grace. He led her to a place where she can be honest about herself, about her sin and her need for him. Jesus doesn't attack her, he doesn't go in with both barrels blazing. He gives her a chance to be to be honest and say, Go call your husband. He lets her reveal the truth to him. I have no husband. Her walls are down. She stands there vulnerable before Him in all of her sin and her shame. And what does Jesus do? He gives grace. Mixed with gut-wrenching, honest truth. He shows her inside and out. He knows her. Jesus doesn't immediately lead with her sexual immorality. I mean, saying to her, everyone knows you've been with that many different men, you sinner. Jesus doesn't allow doesn't, doesn't either blow off her sin as if he doesn't want to offend her or doesn't want the awkwardness of a difficult conversation. She sees that Jesus is a prophet. He revealed supernatural knowledge. She gets that. And then she seems to kind of change the conversation, perhaps to maybe it's uncomfortable. She wants to dodge the issue. And Jesus doesn't even, he just kind of goes with the flow. He continues to draw her into a deeper understanding of who he is. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, throughout the whole conversation, Jesus has been waiting to reveal himself to her when she was ready. I am he. The whole water discussion seems to make sense to her. She came to the well to get temporarily satisfied. She can go to the well of romance to get temporarily satisfied, but she continues to wake up feeling thirsty. It's never enough. She's turned from one man to another, to another, to another, thinking she would find what she is looking for. Now she doesn't even want to mess with marriage. It's been that disillusioning. She continues to wake up thirsty. She chose an easier path to try to deal with the void inside, just find another lover, a new thrill. And she's lived a life shut off from others and from God. Now, she has this encounter with this man who says, I am he, I'm the giver of living water that will never leave you thirsty. I am the one who will satisfy your deepest longings. We all know what it's like, don't we, to yearn for a certain kind of life or family or career. Under that yearning, what we really long for is a sense of significance and safety, peace, security, intimacy, love. And even when we meet some of those longings, to some extent here on earth, that longing is so often not satisfied fully. It just keeps coming back with more. It's never fully satisfied. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, We're half hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We too far too easily are pleased. See, so Jesus is letting us know nothing on earth will ever fill you the way that i can he's saying the living water that i can give story goes on it says just then the disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you mean and why are you talking with her so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me everything i ever did can this be the christ they went out of the town and were coming to him So this woman who a few hours ago was trying to avoid people is now gathering as many people as she can. Fine. I mean, what a dramatic change in a matter of an hour. Many Samaritans, it says, from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. We have now had our own encounter with God, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. i got to tell you, God wants to have that kind of encounter with every single person, that you will come to the place of knowing God yourself that way. See, in this instance, Jesus saw past her labels and her lies that she was telling herself. He spoke truth to her heart with grace, a truth that God saw her and that she was wanted, even in the midst of her sin. I mean, one person, one encounter, what God can do in one person changes so many other people. May we be so bold in our own lives in sharing our own faith and allowing God to encounter people through us. What happened to Nicodemus? Let's go back to him. Nicodemus may have left his encounter with Jesus confused, but he didn't give up. He kept changing. The next time we see him, he's in the official role as a member of the Sanhedrin and some of the Pharisees and one of Jesus arrested and brought before him. And Nicodemus stands up, this time in the light, saying in John 7, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does he came to him in the dark now he stands up in the light speaks up telling the other leaders to keep an open mind about jesus the rest of the council actually dismisses nicodemus's suggestion they've already made their mind up about jesus and but this is still not the end of nicodemus's story we see him referenced again after jesus crucifixion After Jesus died, another member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, a secret follower of Jesus, goes public and asks Pilate for Jesus' body in order to bury it. And in John 19, we see this. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it with linen cloths with the spices. Can you imagine doing this? as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where, they were, where he was crucified, there was a garden, In the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So it appears that Nicodemus became a follower of, like Joseph. I mean, no man of his stature would have taken that kind of a risk, stepping out to care for Jesus in that moment if the Holy Spirit hadn't already begun to change his heart. And Nicodemus used his wealth in such an extravagant way to bring an extravagant measure of spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Again, imagine what that must have been like to take Jesus' body to that tomb, to take all these individual strips of cloth, mix the spices in to ensure that the cloths and the spices would harden into a shell that was the shape of his body within. And imagine him wrapping Jesus' body and remembering the words of Jesus. Imagine him taking another strip and remembering the miracles of Jesus, raising people from the dead and healing people, all coming back to his mind and his heart in that moment. I mean, Nicodemus was persistent in his quest for truth. He probably never thought this encounter with Jesus would have him here with spices in a tomb. He didn't know where his questions would take him, and yet here he is. He was still searching, still staying open to who Jesus is. And we see God use Nicodemus in such a powerful way. To get to that, let's go about part of the other story. When we see Mary and Peter and John finding Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb in John 20. It says this, And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came and following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Such amazing detail. The strips of linen cloth containing the hundred pounds or so of burial spices that Joseph and Nicodemus used to wrap Jesus' body were not disturbed in any way. They were an empty shell. The body hadn't been moved or stolen. And then it goes on and says, Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So Nicodemus, the powerful, brilliant leader of his day, this man questions and has confusion of what it means to follow Jesus. God uses him to provide physical evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection. So as we close today, who are you more like? Just right now in your world, whether you're here or whether you're listening online, who are you more like? Are you more like Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman? Do you feel like you're pretty good, self-righteous, or do you feel like God would never accept me, God would never love me? Are you curious and yet cautious about Jesus? Confused on what He's really asking of you, see in both of these stories, both people wore labels. One was self-righteous, and the other a label of shame. And both labels were intermingled with lies about who God was and who they are, and what it took to know God and His love. One kept working harder to feel about himself, to feel good about himself, and the other had given up and did whatever she could just to fill a longing and a need temporarily. And whatever label you wear. Today, you get to remind yourself that Jesus is ever present. He's waiting to ask you a question. He's waiting to invite you in to a taste of living water. Jesus is pursuing you with grace and with truth. What will you choose? To draw closer to Him or to pull away? Here are some options for how we might want to press in this week. You might want to go home today and you might want to read John 3 and 4 and read these stories for yourself and allow, your, to allow yourself to have just some, some quiet time to imagine you being there, experiencing this. You could put yourself in the role of Nicodemus, put yourself in the role of a woman, or you could just be a fly on the wall. And imagine being there and watching Jesus and let God speak to you through that. You may take time this week just to listen to a worship song and listen for a word or a truth that kind of pulls you in and, and just allow God's Spirit to speak to you about who you are and who He is to you in that moment. You may pause today in the beauty of fall and listen to what God might be saying. And for some of you, it may mean giving your life wholeheartedly to God and becoming a follower of Jesus for the first time and choosing to pursue Him in that way. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come even more powerfully into this room and in whatever room people are sitting in listening to us online, Lord. We've just spent time, God, talking about how you want to encounter us. And Lord, I just believe that you want to encounter every single person listening today in a fresh way that they would hear you speaking both truth and grace and mercy, that each and every one of us would know how much you love us, how much you're pursuing us, what good you have planned for us. So Holy Spirit, just come into this space. We welcome you. Do your good work in us. That we would know you. As we turn our hearts to worship whatever God has been stirring in your heart or your mind, if there are any lies that have come to your mind that you struggle with you tell yourself, I just want you to throw them out with words of worship before God and let His Spirit come and encounter you in this moment. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyardorg give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.